Welcome to The Cutting Room. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. The Cutting Room is a part of the podcast section of The Art of the Guillotine. Each week, The Cutting Room visits editors in their cutting rooms, where they discuss their experiences and techniques. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Cutting Room. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes by searching The Cutting Room. This week's guest is Alan Collins. Alan has edited for Roger Corman and David Cronenberg, and has also edited for shows such as Degrassi Junior High. He is joining me from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. So I guess we'll start with how you became an editor. Well, I took a course, a film course at Bristol University amongst, it was part of a, a, a theater course. And for one year I, I studied uh, film and we ended up making a film on 16 millimeter. Uh, we would le- learned how to do that. At the same time, the course was studying the works of Eisenstein, well, all the films of Eisenstein. So I quickly found out about the, this, the theory of montage, and I thought that was fantastic. I think that's what got me interested in editing. And then I got very interested, big fan of horror movies and Roger Corman films. And I started writing to him and also writing little articles about him in student magazines. And uh, he actually replied and said, uh, you're welcome to come and visit me anytime, you know, if you're in the States. And that's sort of my motivation really was. I I tried to get into the States, but I couldn't get any immigration. So uh, I applied to go to Canada, and within two weeks I had my papers. So I figured that was where I should start from, and then I I came to Toronto. So from Toronto, you went down to L.A., or how did that... Well, I got a job as an assistant editor on TV commercials. Eventually, there wasn't a very big industry then. It was like 1967, I think, the year of Expo, the year before Expo. And um, I got this job, and then I was laid off because there wasn't any work. And then I became an assistant editor, or no, I became, actually, they, they took me on as a summer replacement editor at the CBC, and I stayed there for a while, and then I, I, I quit that, and I went into a production job, and that didn't really last more than a year, and then I ended up going to Montreal. What was editing at the CBC like? Well, in those days, I mean, uh, all they had was movieolas and uh, hot splices, those so long ago. They, the tape splice uh, had sort of come out, but if something was going to air, it had to be hot spliced. So you had to be very careful where you made the splices. And they did do negative cutting if there was time, and they were the good shows to work on because you could actually use tape splices. But you were still working on a moviola. So um, I got to know, to get quite good with the moviola. When you're talking about hot splices, was that stuff for, like, the news? Well, uh, magazine shows, like... If it was just, yeah, mainly a news item, but it wasn't necessarily designed for the news. It would be for a, um, a <clears throat> magazine, like a evening sort of, I think what the equivalent of the journal or something like that. And um, they, they would want like a 10-minute item. That would have to be hot spice. I didn't do too many of those. By the time I, I started, they were even running tape splices on the air. So that was okay. And more and more stuff was getting negative cuts, so it was all right. From there, you went to Montreal. So I went happen. to Montreal. I got to work on Steambacks. I thought that was fantastic. When the Steambeck came out, it was a great uh, sort of discovery, or it just opened up the whole world of possibilities. You know? And then they had doubles, two, two screen machines, and you could run two pictures at once. That was pretty good. What was it that made you go to Montreal? Montreal was um, uh, it's sort of a roundabout story, but there, well, there was Expo going on, and uh, it was an exciting place to be. And um, this guy who I met at the CBC while I was editing there offered me a job working for him. It turned out he didn't have any money, so I couldn't, he couldn't pay me. No, actually, no, what happened was he just moved to Toronto. That was it. When I got to Montreal, he just moved to Toronto. I did end up working for him later, but I stayed in Montreal the whole summer 
and I worked at a lab there. Called, it was Pathé Labs, yeah, Astro, Astro Labs, and I was dubbing uh, English, American TV shows into French. I was just doing soundtracks for that. It was my job. So there wasn't much editing up in Montreal? Well, there was, but it was mostly in French. Yeah. I did at the time, just before I left, meet an editor that I later became great friends with, a guy named Tony Douglas, who became a very good, uh, successful commercial editor in Toronto. And through him, I met Kit Hood, who I, I spent a lot of time working with later on in on Degrassi Street. And I'm still working with him because we formed a little production company together here in um, Halifax. You cut Degrassi for two years. Um, Degrassi, that was, but before that I went to L.A. and worked with Roger Corman for three years before I got back up to Canada. And eventually I ended up on Degrassi Street, but that was came quite a lot later. Tell me, how did the Roger Corman project come about? Because you would talk to him in, in well, England. Well, he knew who I was. Um, I had I met him while I was on vacation in England. He was giving a lecture at the National Film Theatre. So I made sure I went to that lecture. And then right afterwards, he was in the bar. He was, he was, he was I guess he was in his 30s then. He was pretty young. And he was talking to um, people, students, mainly film students from London Film School, uh, in the bar who had been at the lecture and then I came up to him and I said uh, do you remember me I was wrote letters to you and so on and he did and then he's he's I said do you have any work and he said well actually right now I'm looking for an assistant editor so I said well that's great I'd like to to do that and then I went with I, I got hired for Von Richthofen and Brown that I eventually ended up being um, well a dialogue editor on so that was my huge break that I got then really I was actually doing all the dialogue sequences because it was an uh, action World War One action film, and the main editor had to contend with all the action, the air battles, and they had five camera shooting, so he was going crazy with all this footage. They needed somebody to cut all the dialogue scenes, which was actually about sixty percent of the film, but they let me do it because Roger Coleman didn't want to bring in somebody that would cost him a lot of money, and I happened to be right there, and uh, the actual editor helped me out a bit. He he helped me edit scenes like when I had to show an example of something I had edited basically he cut that scene with my help my, he helped me cut the scene so then I was approved as the editor what did you learn about dialogue editing from this situation because here you are you're thrown into editing all these dialogue scenes well this editor had a very uh, tight editing the guy his name was George Van Noy he's a very good editor he he liked to cut right on a word or he, he, he didn't allow any dead frames on the screen at all so the dialogue was very, very crisp. It really kind of flew, flew back and forth. And quite often you'd overlap dialogue, like when there wasn't dialogue, like just to speed up the scene. I know, I learned that kind of thing. Then you came back to Montreal? I came back to Toronto. I got a contract editing this, editing this TV show, sort of like what now later became The Fifth Estate. It was called that, yeah, The Weekend. Weekend was the title of the, sh- the series. It was run. It was produced by Richard Nielsen. So I was going back and forth from this TV series to work in L.A. on a, on a low-budget feature film, and then I would come back for about three or four months, and I would come back to Toronto. That continued for a couple of years, and then I did the David Cronenberg film, so that came before Degrassi Street. Well, what were, what were some of the other films that you did for Roger Corman? My final film that I did with him was I Escaped from Devil's Island, which was quite a big-budget film, and... Jim Brown was the star of the film. He's a, he was a black actor, one of the first sort of big stars of, of black cinema. And um, he was previously a, a champion football player. 
he was a very tough guy, and I, I got to work with him a little bit. What was uh, I Escape from Devil's Island about? Yeah, well, the idea of the film was this film called Papillon had just come out, which was about the same subject, somebody escaping from this almost impossible prison, uh, a French prison. Uh, Steve McQueen was in it. It was a big-budget film, and it did very well. So Roger Corman decided to bring out this film called I Escape from Devil's Island with Jim Brown playing the Steve McQueen role. And a lot of people went to see it thinking they were seeing Papillon, but they <laughs> actually saw a totally different film, and it did quite well too. So when you were when you were cutting Devil's Island, did you go to Papillon to to see <laughs> Styles or? I never once looked at Papillon. No, okay. no, I should have, but I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have time. I was so busy trying to keep up with the footage. It was all action scenes. Over the years, I've had a lot of good assistants. And on that picture, I had a guy named Tom Walls who worked with me. We became very good friends. And um, he later on went, well, he'd previously worked as assistant to Martin Scorsese, so he was, he knew a lot about film, he learned a lot, he knew, he learned a lot from Martin Scorsese, he had, he had a lot of stories about Martin Scorsese, and um, he ended up working, editing several films for Robert Altman, and I think he's still uh, a very successful film editor in L.A. So what, what did you learn about action cutting from such a big film like this? Well, the usual things. I mean, the good thing about that film was it was uh, directed by a guy named, um, uh, oh, um, I've forgotten his name now, but he he um, he directed the Superman uh, series for, TV, for um, when it was a, a, a film serial. And he had the record for doing the most number of setups in, in one day, which was about 120 setups. So he worked very fast, and he would never often would never do a complete take. If he didn't get uh, the, the take first time, he'd go off and change the camera angle. So I, I had an enormous amount of variety to work with, and that really worked well in uh, action sequences. The transition from film to digital, when was it that you made that, that transition? Well, that was pretty difficult for me. Um, I first of all went into um, linear editing, like the tape editing, where you had to more or less each time you, you made a cut, you lost a generation. And I used Grass Valley a little bit. I found that was very difficult because you have to keep entering tape numbers the whole time, every time you made a cut, which tape it came from. And that was sometimes if you didn't enter the right tape number, you got into terrible problems later on when it came to the conform. So I hated that system. But then when digital editing came along, I thought that was great. And um, I got somebody that was an assistant editor basically to when I was hired for a documentary to edit the film and I acted like I was the director until the point where I could more or less take over from her. And that's how I learned that system and a couple of other um, nonlinear systems that were around then, okay, so including uh, Media 100. Tell me about working on uh, Degrassi. Well, that was back to film days. I mean, we were still editing on film then. So it was actually using, yeah, we were using flatbeds. But um, all the sound editing, for example, was done. You had to have all the soundtracks were laid individually and then um, uh, mixed in on different reels. So the, 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 the mixing theater would have about 20 different reels of actual tape magnetic tracks running. Degrassi Street, well, the thing about that was we had to work very fast. I think we had three weeks there, maybe, including the shooting, the time they were shooting to edit each show and then you had to move on to another show so there was like a freeze picture day that was you couldn't change it well and that's still the same i think in tv series how did you find cutting non-actors compared to actors well i don't call those people non-actors because they always knew their lines and um they they responded to direction and 
the way the film was shot was, although they didn't have two cameras, like as soon as they, they would never, st they'd have a zoom uh, lens so that every time they, they got the shot they were looking for, they would zoom out to a different shot or a wide shot or, or something. And if it was a wide shot, they would start zooming into close-ups and getting close-ups right away if they had already got one take that was reasonable in the wide shot. So it was sort of like having two cameras, although you didn't have, you only actually had one because that camera never stayed on the same um, type of shot for long and wouldn't stay on a wide shot or a two shot for long, it would start zooming into close-ups. Kit Hood was the director of that series. He was very, very good and fast. You worked on uh, David Cronenberg's The Brood. How did that come about? Well, that came about because, um, basically, because my assistant at that time was his girlfriend. He he wanted her to be the, the on the picture that he was uh, planning to next film that he was going to do. And um, so I got the job as well. <laughs> but I hadn't met him before because I had been, um, I, I, I met him when I, I used to be part of what was called early version of the Cinematheque. And um, we put on a little series of his um, experimental films. And he did a little kind of um, workshop there. So I really knew about him. And in fact, after I had worked for Roger Corman, I, um, I proposed, a, I had a, 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 a story idea that Roger Corman was very keen to make a film about Habitat, this building that he'd seen at Expo, and a sort of very futuristic apartment building. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he said, anybody that can write a story about that um, building, uh, I'd like to make it into a film. So I told David Cronenberg about this. He quickly wrote a story about the building and about some uh, telepathic people there. And um, <clears throat> it was called Telepathy 2000. And, and but the problem was that by the time he got the script to Roger Corman, uh, Corman had moved on to do other things and he, he kind of lost interest in that project. So he didn't want to, he was making films a lot more cheaply in Mexico and places like that. Mm -hmm. So he didn't really want to do that project. But David Cronenberg actually put that, that script away in the drawer and it late, uh, eventually became, now I'm, I'm, I'm memories, Scanners. Yeah, it became Scanners. So I sort of had a hand in that. But the film that I edited came before that. It was called The Brood. Okay. And that's the film I edited for him as a result of being friends with his girlfriend. When you were cutting The Brood, did you go back to any of his older films for reference? Not much, no. The film that we took a lot of reference from was uh, Psycho. What kind of references did you use? Well, we actually used a lot of the music from Psycho as guide track. And um, uh, it really, he said he really liked the rough cut when I showed him the first rough cut, and it had all the Psycho music in. And then later on, Howard Shaw came to work on the film, and when he looked at it, we took all the music track out, but he ended up writing a, a, a piece of music uh, for his soundtrack was very like Psycho because David said, well, I really like Bernard Herrmann. So then Hardcore, Howard um, Shaw started writing in that style. But uh, that was his first film as a composer. David's got sort of this psychological undertones in all his films. Did you find that influenced the way you cut? Well, he changed my approach to editing a lot from what I had learned from Roger Corman because he likes to sit on shots. He doesn't like to have every shot end right on the beat, you know, of the dialogue. Uh, he likes to hold shots and slow down the pace sometimes uh, and this kind of thing. So the first scene that I cut, from, cut for him, he made me recut it about 20 times until he was satisfied. And um, from then on, I, I gave him that, that, that type of editing. I stopped doing the fast instant cutting type style he has like his own sort of approach to editing that he wants I, I would say definitely he has his own approach to everything 
But he he completely likes to be in control of the editing, but that was fine. Have you found that any other mediums have influenced your work? Well, I love music videos. Mm-hmm. I especially like the music videos of Spike Jones and Michel Gondry. Yeah. I think Michel Gondry is absolutely my favorite director right now for as far as the way he uses editing. You cut Love at First Sight? Yeah, I did cut that film. That was the first film of uh, Dan Aykroyd, and it was directed by a really very good director who should have become a huge, successful Canadian director, but I think he only did a few other films, and then he was working in television, but I think he's, he still lives in Vancouver, so if he's around, I'll say hi to him. His name is Rex Bromfield. When you're cutting a comedy, how do you find that uh, Aykroyd sense of timing? Like, how did you play off that for your cutting? Well, he was very deadpan. I mean, he's a great actor, and he sort of played it like he took everything very sort of um, straight. He played it, all the jokes in it that were kind of like black humor, and and there was sort of like I remember a lot of sight gags in the film, and there was a bus like he got onto this bus that said sightseeing, and he went to Niagara Falls, got on this bus that said sightseeing, and then. Um, he was at Niagara Falls and, and he was trying to have a conversation with somebody, but um, the, the sound effects of the of the waves kept kept getting in the way and he, of the of the, the, the water, and um, I don't know there was a lot of um, a lot of weird stuff in that film. It was it was pretty it was like, like slapstick quite a bit. There's one scene I, I could talk about. It's sure. called um, "Can You See Me Now?" And mm-hmm. if you ever get hold of that film, it's it's a really the funniest scene in the film. It's when he gets out of his car and he tries to go and take a pee in the woods and he wanders off from his girlfriend's looking at this money that somehow or other and it was in his pocket. And um, when she um, looks to see him, he says, can you see me now? And he's, he wants to go somewhere behind a bush or something like that. And she says, yeah, I can see you. So she, he finally wanders off so far that she can't see him anymore. And then she goes looking for him and she can't find him, and you just hear her voice in the tree saying, Roy, where are you? And then you see him, and he's found the car. He says, I'm at a car. It's, it's our car. Because he's feeling everything. He can't see anything. Yeah. So then um, she says, oh, don't move or something like that. Anyway, that, that, that's sort of the end of the scene. But the whole scene is kind of long shots of the, the woods and this, these little tiny little figures in, them, in, the, in the distance and calling back and forth to one another. Sight gags are better in the wide shot. I mean, there's more funny stuff going on visually. Um, it depends. I mean, you need the close-ups too. But but of the, of the for the humor, I think the sight, the wide, wider shots or full shots are better. You know, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to interview. Okay, and well, thanks for thanks for doing the interview. I'd like to thank Alan Collins for joining me from Halifax, Canada. I'd also like to thank my producer Lauren Woodcock. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.